While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and inclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give as alms to those that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Before I dig in... Before I do that, uh, I want to give you a reminder. There are people who are still sensitive uh, to people getting too close because of COVID, and so please be respectful of that. But take a second and just say hello to your neighbor and welcome them in the Lord, and then we'll dive in. Okay, enough friendliness. Let's get back to business here. So, I was really torn because this is a huge passage of Scripture, and I have so very much to say about it. In fact, it is the longest sermon I have ever written. And I have 31 minutes and 5, 4, 3, 2 seconds to teach it in. So I am, get your fingers out. Crack them up, get them all ready. You've got some paper. If you don't, raise your hand. We'll hand you a booklet. We've got the notes booklets out there. 
We're talking today about hypocrites. I did not plan that to be a Mother's Day sermon. Uh, nevertheless, I always preach what's next, and what's next is, woe to you, hypocrites. God set it up to be on Mother's Day, not me. So, of course, welcome and thank you to not just women who have given birth, because certainly we know that women touch many lives, whether or not they've ever given birth, they are still uh, mothers to so many. And we do appreciate you and take time today to honor you and to thank you for all that you do. So certainly I would like to take a moment to define the word hypocrite. So it's a word I hear very often. Usually it's from someone who is explaining to me why they don't come to church. I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I used to think about that and say, well, yes, of course, it is. all of us are hypocrites. And so, yes, it, it, it's full of hypocrites. Please come and join us and be a hypocrite among us. And then I thought about it more, and actually, while it certainly is true of some, it's not true of everyone, because hypocrite is actually a word that means like an actor. To play someone that you're not, to play a role or a part, but you're not actually that person. And so to actually be a hypocrite you would literally have to be playing a part that you aren't. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not necessarily a hypocrite because their complaint is, oh, well, you go to church and you pretend like you're this on Sunday morning, but during the week, if we follow you around, your language and your lifestyle might give something different. Well, that doesn't necessarily make you a hypocrite. It might just make you forgiven, right? Certainly, uh, we all act different at church than we do when we're driving on 580. But that's not totally unusual because I act differently when I'm in a restaurant than I do when I'm driving on 580. I act differently in a lot of different settings based on the setting, but I'm the same person, a sinner that's saved by grace. So when we look at hypocrites, we're looking specifically at people who are playing a part. And your Bibles may or may not use that word in this setting or in this context. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what Jesus is addressing uh, in this passage is some hypocrisy. So Jesus condemns in the strongest way, uh, especially the religious elite who are acting one way, but actually living a completely different life. The church is actually full of hypocrites in one sense, and certainly in that since we uh, welcome you and glad you're here. Uh, probably the biggest hypocrisy I see in the church is 
follows this question. How are you? Almost everyone lies when you say, how are you? I'm fine, right? Or mine is peachy. If I say I'm peachy, hide, right? We all have those moments. It's a difference in what we say versus what is going on in our heads. Sometimes we're screaming for help, but maybe have a, si a smile on our face and, and this peace about us. But really what we need is just to hug someone or to talk about something. And it's a sad thing, a sad state in the church uh, that we should do that. But nevertheless, that is often what it is. Uh, Christians, however, are never without sin, right? When we're looking at sin, this is part of the, the biggest things is people will say, no, you act perfect or you say you're perfect, you claim to be a Christian, but you act in this way or you use these words or you drive a certain way or you do this, so you must be a hypocrite and certainly uh, there could be truth to that but the bigger picture is we are born with a sin nature we will die still with a sin nature but what happens in between is we've been redeemed we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord so we are forgiven and so, yes, while we will still make mistakes, while we still struggle between the two, ultimately we have been redeemed and we undergo sanctification. And so we see the Apostle Paul as he struggles with this also in Romans chapter 7, right? In verse 18 he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And so the Apostle Paul is, is describing this war that goes on within him. He says, and the more I want to do good, the more my flesh battles against that. And this constant war that happens in between. So while Jesus was speaking, remember he was talking last week and a woman interrupts him and now He's talking again, and some, a Pharisee interrupts him and says, Oh, will you come to my house and eat with me? 
So he went in and he reclined at the table. Now, people know, right? It's like if I'm getting invited to dinner, either I'm truly getting invited to dinner because they like me and want to invite me to dinner. More likely, they like Tish and they'll tolerate me, but they're going to invite us to dinner. Or they're inviting the pastor to dinner. See, that's a very different thing. Are you inviting me as a person to dinner, or are you inviting me as the pastor? And one time we went to dinner at a friend's house, and, and he was a traffic reporter. And during the dinner, he kept saying, so, Pastor John. And I'm like, no, I'm John. And then a little while later, he's like, so, Pastor John. And I'm like, no, it's just John. And so later in the night, he goes, so Pastor John, I said, yes, traffic reporter Bob. <laughs> Never made the mistake again, right? So it's this question, like, why is this Pharisee inviting Jesus to dinner? Well, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So Jesus is still speaking. The Pharisee talks to him and says, hey, you want to come to dinner? Now, it was traditional and necessary when you would walk into someone's home that you would remove your sandals and certainly either there would be someone there to wash your feet or you would wash your own feet because you've just walked. You're wearing sandals. And on the ground is, of course, all the dirt and the grime and everything else. But also the sewers ran down the middle of the street. It was just a dirty place. And so you would wash your feet or someone would be there to wash your feet. But in the home of the religious elite... After you were ready in every other way, before you would sit down to eat dinner, it was expected that you would go and wash your hands. It wasn't to get the dirt and grime off. Probably that's already been done. This was ceremonial. It was saying, I come to the table with clean hands. Right? And generally, it's a religious Thing. And they're saying, oh my goodness, here he comes, a rabbi, a teacher, and they were astonished he didn't wash his hands. So, of course, the question is, why did they invite Jesus over? Have you ever had invited someone over to your house for dinner and they don't match up culturally to your house? And, of course, they might not know there's different things or different ways that we do things. And, of course, it depends a lot on whether the person's from an entirely different culture. But Jesus walks in. They didn't invite Jesus because they like Jesus. We already know they're struggling with what he's saying. They're watching him uh, do all of these phenomenal miracles. Jesus is not their favorite person. So if they've invited him to dinner, it's because they have ulterior motives. Their motives are not 
pure. In the 24th Psalm, we see this picture in verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? In verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So they're looking at it in verse 4. They're saying, Hey, who ascends to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. And Jesus says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to take it one step further. And it's he who has a pure heart. They're astonished because they've laid this trap and Jesus is walking right into their trap. He didn't even wash his hands. Oh, goodness. And the Lord said to him in verse 39, Now you Pharisees, Cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. A great way to start conversation if someone invites you to your home, their home is tell them how greedy and wicked they are. They love it, right? Breaks the ice, works every time. You clean the outside but you left the inside untouched. They're stuck on 24A, clean hands, but they've forgotten about 24B and a clean heart. So we've all been to those restaurants, right, where you go to the restaurant. Have you ever picked up a water glass and you're just about to take a drink and there's lipstick on this glass? And since I don't wear lipstick, it's probably not mine. Right? You've all, we've all been there where we've seen the silverware and decided, I'm not going to eat with that silverware. And sometimes even been to a restaurant and decided, yeah, I don't think I'm going to eat here at all. Not everything is as clean as it appears. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out. Everything isn't clean. You've whitewashed the outside, but you haven't taken care of what's on the inside. You fools, he says in verse 40, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Literally, when you take a dish, you can actually clean the outside pretty easily. It's not that hard. Even if you don't do anything with what's inside. But if you have a glass and you decide, I'm going to clean the inside, it's almost impossible to clean the inside without the outside being clean. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you'd focus on the inside... The outside takes care of itself, but you're so worried about taking care of the outside that you've allowed the inside to become rotten. Ver number one point we're looking at today, we must be faithful to clean the outside and the inside. I'm not suggesting that you spend all week praying so that then when you come to church on Sunday, you're going to smell great on the outside, right? Yes, it's great you're taking care of the inside. We need to really take care of both. Take care of the inside, take care of the outside. But especially we need to know that we're spending time in prayer, that we're studying the Word, that we're right 
with the Lord. And of course, when Jesus uses the word fools here, he's not using it lightly. And it doesn't mean, like we say, if we call someone a fool, right? We're generally meaning that they're somehow deficient in their mental state. Jesus isn't using the word the same way. In fact, in Psalms 14.1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So literally what fool means in Jesus' day and in Jesus' time and the way he's using it is when he says, you fools, he's saying, you unsaved people. Right? You've lost sight of who you are when he uses the word fools. So he's not making dinner super enjoyable. So these are men who are used to be treated, used to be being treated well. I really have to work on my syntax here. They like to be treated well. They expect to be honored. They expect to be appreciated. And Jesus walks in, and the first thing he says to them is, You fools. You idiots. What are you doing? I mean, he's just really making friends. And, and, you know, he should write a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Then he goes in 42, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 23 is the parallel verse here. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They're very careful to walk and to watch the letter of the law, but they're missing the spirit of the law. And of course, we see in Micah 6, 8, right? God says, oh, you fools, what does God require of you but that you choose justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? And he says, you're missing it. You're so worried about these rules, but you're missing the bigger picture. So we must, not be fa- we must not fail to be faithful to those things that God requires of us. So what does God require of us? Mike, Micah 6.8, choose justice, love mercy, honor God, walk humbly with God. Right? We need to have this relationship with God. And when we have this relationship with God, what pours out of that is that we choose justice. There's been all of this stuff going around the last couple years. Oh, social justice. And what about this? And what about that? And some people saying yes. And some people saying no. No, And this war erupting in society and in the church as well. And everywhere you look, 
What about social justice? And the question is, yes, what about social justice? See, social justice isn't this thing that should be taught in schools. Social justice isn't this thing that should be uh, enshrined in the laws or even worried about in the courthouses. Social justice begins in the home, in the hearts of each and every individual. Because it begins with, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And he created them in his image. See, how we treat people reflects who we think about, what we think about God and who we think he is. Because he says he created them in his image. Every person that we see, every person that we walk into, every person that we have conversation with was created in the image of God. How do we treat people? Because literally, it's how we treat the Imago Day. Not worried about it. People are like, oh, pastor, I don't want you to start into all this social justice. It's not my place. Because true social justice doesn't begin in the pulpit. It begins on our knees. It says, do we choose justice? Do we love mercy? Do we walk humbly with our God? And the more we walk with God the humbler we become. Because the closer we get to the cross, the more obvious our sins become. Luke eleven forty three. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and you greet in the mar- and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are unlike for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is significant because the unmarked graves, you weren't allowed to walk on a grave. If you walked on top of a grave, you became unclean. And so what they would have to do is they would take, go into the graveyards and they would make a big point of marking where all the graves were. And I don't know about you, but I was taught as a child when we would go to the cemetery, don't walk there. That's someone's grave, right? You don't step on someone's grave. Usually we think of it as a sign of disrespect, but it began centuries before in, yeah, you know, if you walk on a dead person, you become unclean. So he's literally saying to them, woe to you Pharisees, For you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you make other people unclean. Like he has gone to the extreme. It's one thing to just say, you know, you say you're this, but you're this. He says you pollute other people. 
What's important to you is where you sit and how people treat you. He said you love it when they're showering you with praise and they're welcoming you and they, they come up to your seat where you're sitting in the synagogue and they greet you and you just love that. And he says, but you make people unclean. You're unclean. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Real bright guy, this lawyer, as most lawyers are. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. So literally the Pharisees have been getting battered. And so the lawyer, and by the way, we're not talking about lawyers of the Roman law. We're talking about lawyers people knowledgeable in God's law. And so one of the lawyers decide, I'm going to stick up for the Pharisees. And he said, um, you're insulting us also because the lawyers were the ones that made sure that everyone knew, hey, this is what the law is and you're violating that law. Did you walk too far on Saturday? Did you touch the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing? Then you are guilty and you are unclean. And by the way, if you put a little bit extra money in the offering plate, we can make that go away. Really sweet people. So he says, teacher, you're insulting us too. And he says, what do you lawyers for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You make sure all the people follow the law, and you don't follow it yourself. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Hey, you're so caught up in what everyone else is doing, you're not paying attention. And this is exactly where this verse comes in, and you'll, know, you'll recognize the verse. Be sure to remove the log from your own eye before you worry about removing the speck from someone else's. We should all be held to the same standard. Always this question I get asked, and I always joke about it. As a pastor, I'm usually asked one very important question. Pastor, have you ever been divorced? My answer's always the same. I'm still married to my first wife. Right? No one's ever asked me, Pastor, have you ever murdered someone? Apparently, that's okay. As long as you've not been divorced, you can do anything else you want and still be pastor. But pastor, don't get divorced. That's the unforgiveness. No. When we look at the elders, there's always this, these are qualifications for elders. These are the qualifications for pastors. But when you read the list in the Bible of the qualifications of elders and pastors and deacons and all of the others... Guess what? Those are the same qualifications that are necessary for every single person that goes under the name of Christian. Are they important of a pastor? Absolutely. Are they important of an elder? Absolutely. Are they important of every Christian? Absolutely. And yet here they were saying, hey, 
yes, you all have to obey all these rules, but they're for you. They're not for us. And Jesus is calling them on it. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your father for they killed them and you build their tombs. So outside of the city of Jerusalem today, you can go there and you will see tombs. You will see markers made in honor of prophets that the fathers, the grandfathers of these very men killed. Jesus is calling them on it. They're saying, hey, your grandfather killed this guy and you're out there building this monument in his honor. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Right? We see this picture in John 11, where John says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They had the privilege this generation had this privilege and honor, right? Above all the generations, this generation got to know the Messiah. They got to see the Messiah. And this generation, like no other, right? They're getting to see Jesus. They're getting to talk to Him. They're witnessing Him casting out demons. They're seeing all that he is, and still they're saying, you know, there is no, like he is not the Messiah. He's not the one. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be held accountable, more so than other generations. In verse 50, it says, So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So it's, in truth, not just that generation. But every generation since and every generation before, it is going to be required of each person. Did you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? But this generation has Jesus standing there in their midst. They've witnessed His power and His authority. And still they reject Him says this we are accountable for knowing the word of god what is the problem with this generation this generation that jesus lived in had the scripture and still rejected it they knew everything they needed to know about the coming messiah but they were so wrapped up in the details of things that didn't matter that when the Messiah came, they didn't recognize him. Luke eleven fifty two. 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. 
And we know it says, oh, it couldn't be the worst thing you can do is lead someone astray. Then it's like taking a millstone and hanging it around your neck and being thrown into the river, right? Is how the Bible describes this. He says, woe to you, for you've not only you have the key of knowledge, you didn't use it for yourself, but those who were entering, those who were like on the right track, those people you hindered, you got in their way. It's scary sometimes when we look and it's constantly a prayer of mine, Lord, I'm not perfect and I know I mess up, but Lord, don't let me hinder someone from knowing you. Right? Help me teach. This is why I had this conversation with someone the other day and I said, it's exactly why I teach the way I teach. Because he said, you know, I went to this church and he said it was great. The, the message was great and the word was great and everything. He said, but they kept taking all the scriptures out of context. It's why I teach the way I do. I always teach what's next. Because when you teach what's next, you can't take anything out of context. And he says, well, yeah, but when you teach, like he said, don't you come across things that are a little uncomfortable? All the time. Right? The only thing worse, and I've preached both, than teaching woe to you hypocrites on Mother's Day is about five years ago when on Mother's Day I taught about the horror in Babylon. Right? I regularly find myself in an uncomfortable position. But I teach what's next, not for my comfort, but for the continuity of Scripture, that I not fail to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what's absolutely necessary. We don't preach to make people feel good. Preaching is a part of worship. It's the hearing, the reading, the preaching of the Word of God for our edification and for His glorification. Luke 11.53, And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And the reason they asked him to dinner. It wasn't because, wow, he has performed all these miracles and he speaks such wisdom. I want to be around him. I want to hear more of what his words are. I want to see more miracles. Instead, they invited him to dinner to set a trap to catch him in something he might say. And he knew it from the beginning. He is the God of all creation. He walks into the house knowing that he has been stepping into a trap. And when he gets in, he immediately begins to say only the truth. I am here because you invited me here and you invited me here because you're sinners. You have no clue who I am because you don't care about what the Word says. You only care about the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You don't know anything about a relationship with God because all you care about is your status and your honor 
and that people think good things about you. And he says, but there's only one thing that is required of you, old man, in Micah 6, 8, that you choose justice, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. Jesus' words are not only convicting for the Pharisees and the lawyers of his day, but they should also be convicting for us, for each one of us. Sometimes we get so caught, man, you know, if they were a Christian, would they do? Those things should be so far out of our mind. The most important thing for each one of us is, Lord, on a day-to-day basis, am I keeping my eyes on you? We must be faithful to clean the outside and the inside of the cup. We must not fail to be faithful to those things that God requires of us, which, of course, is to choose justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And we need to be sure that we take the log out of our own eye. By the way, you'll never see, right? This is the whole point. You'll never see a speck in someone else's eye if you've got a log in your own. In other words, pray for someone, love them, walk beside them, but don't necessarily get caught up in what they're doing wrong. Because a lot of times when we see other people that are doing wrong, all it's doing is distracting us from where we're falling short. He says, don't do that. And we must know and live and teach the gospel. So this week, it's been historic. Of course, we've all seen the whole thing about the leak from uh, the Supreme Court, and I, I, I can't not address it, and it kind of fits into so much of this because, of course, we celebrate the fact that... Um, you know, yeah, Roe versus Wade, and there's been 65 million children that, that have been aborted in, in all of the years, and, and yay, we would like that never to happen again. Okay, so overturning of Roe versus Wade doesn't change anything. Uh, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, no, Roe versus Wade should never have been a thing. Because this isn't a constitutional issue. This is a legal issue. It should have been handled in all the overturning of Roe versus Wade does is it makes it a state's rights issue. So love it, hate it, whatever. Protest whichever side you want to protest, do whatever. And certainly I, I get so many different sides. And here's the thing. For someone to get to a place where they are choosing abortion, they are hurt and they are broken. Would that we would care more about what brought them to that place. 
than where they are. Would that we would love someone who will have to live with that decision for the rest of their lives. Would that we would be there to support them before they have to make that decision. When we care more about the individual than we do really about the government, it can require unholiness or holiness or whatever. It's an instrument of, of God and of Satan both. But we need to love the people. That is what God has called us to do. I hate that each of us is... is you know, people say, oh, if you're a Republican, you know, you, you don't want anyone to have abortions. And you, I don't think there's anybody that wants anyone to have to have an abortion. It's a reality of the world we live in. I don't like being judged because of how I vote. Um, nor is it fair to say, oh, my goodness, if you're a Democrat, how can you be a Democrat? Because then you support the murder of babies. That's also not fair. What's important is that we love people. That we're there for them. Arguably on the worst day of their life. And that we love them through it. So I've said all I can say because otherwise I'll cry. Father, we... We thank you that you have called us to love you and to praise you and to worship your name. Father, we pray that we would be a people that would, you, would do what you have asked us, that we would choose justice, that we would love mercy. That we would walk humbly with you. Father, I thank you because this passage is just so perfect for this week as our country walks through the mess that it has created for itself. But Father, for us, let us be humble knowing that we are all sinners and at the very best saved by grace. Father, let us love others where they're at, regardless of where they've been or how life has treated them or maybe even where they're going. Father, let us love people. Hopefully, we can help love them into the kingdom. Father, we thank you again because you are an awesome God. And it is an honor to be here today to worship you. We thank you for our mothers, the women that have been so important in our lives. It's been an honor to know them and to love them and to care for them. Truly, you are awesome.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.